Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. And I am joined by my good mate, Andrew Page, the straw man himself. G'day, mate. How are you? Very well. Very well. Glad to be here. How are you? I am concerned, mate, that I didn't ask you on Friday, and so our listeners may not know what straw man is. Can you help me? Oh, mate. <laughs> you know what it is, right? <laughs> yes, but where's the fun in that? Where's the theatre? <laughs> We're a private online investment club. I thought that might be the case. I'm glad it hasn't changed. It'll stick. Know, mate, It'll stick corporate eventually. reinvention. You could be a lithium miner if you're, or, you know, a, a cannabis company. There's, there's so many things you could turn straw man into, mate, if you followed the prevailing winds. So I just want to check just to make Blockchain. sure still what you said. Blockchain Oh, based. yes, of course. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> I don't think we have any Bitcoin questions. I hope. Oh, we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Mate, uh, let's kick off with a really good question from Jack. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Good start, Jack. Well done. Oh, hey, I haven't said this for a while. I'm gonna, sorry, Jack. If you're enjoying the podcast, can you do us a favor? Particularly if you're an iTunes user, could you go and throw some stars at us in the App Store? Uh, people find the podcast based or, or podcast based on a combination of where we are in the charts and all sorts of stuff, but also the ratings and reviews. It also helps our potential listeners work out whether it's for them. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please go and give us some stars in the App Store if you wouldn't mind or the whatever they call this in the podcast shop, uh, go to go to the Apple thing, click on the stars, give us five if you wouldn't mind. Uh, it's one of those, it's a bit like Uber, right? I'd say if it's five stars or, or bust. So if you wouldn't mind, if you're enjoying it, please do us a favor. All right, back to Jack. Love the podcast, he says, and appreciate the weekly wrap-up of the ASX and the broader market each week. Both of your insights have continually helped me build on my own passion for investing. And for that, I am truly grateful. Mate, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm really, really pleased. My question, he says, revolves around the idea of using an active and passive investment style. I'm currently 24 years of age, hold roughly 20K in individual stocks, which I've continuously tipped into over the years. The mix of my portfolio is overall based on the ASX 200 with a few falling knife catches that haven't gone to plan. In brackets, Kogan drink. Yes, thank you, Jack. However, I'm in it for the long haul, good man, and don't see myself selling these anytime soon, which brings me to my question. As I'm solely invested in the ASX and still at the age where compounding can be extremely beneficial, you are dead right, do you see the benefit of diversifying down the path of, here's two options for you, Ram, A, buying an ETF that tracks the ASX to ensure I can reap the rewards of dollar cost averaging over the long term or diversify into an internationally based ETF and continue my not so Warren Buffett approach of individual stock picking on the ASX. Understand general advice only, dead right, Jack. However, it would be great to hear your thoughts on an individual stock picking style versus a combination of ETFs and individual stocks. P.S. I, I, I motion that when Andrew mentions ProMedicus, he too has to have a drink. <laughs> I'm assuming it would be Johnny Walker Blue after his 10 bagger. Cheers, Jack. I think it's a very good idea, Jack. I'm, I'm warming to that a lot. It's, it's actually a 50 bagger, but who's counning? Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's what <laughs> Have to deal with it, uh, mate. Uh, well done, by the way. Let's let's. So his question is is a good one. He's mostly uh, so he's got he's got a combination individual stocks, but he's looking to add some ETFs in. And he's saying, does he does he add an Australian ETF to his Australian stock picks to get the full value of dollar cost averaging, or should he take the opportunity if he's going to do an ETF to be international 
and keep his individual stock picking for Australia while getting the international benefit of an ETF. Now, when I say he, as Jack says himself, we can't give Jack individual advice, but generally speaking, what do you think of the two approaches, mate? Uh, either or. They're both, they're both great options. For me, for me, it comes... Look, if you want to... If you want to say which is, in theory, better, mm. then the individual stock picking approach is better with the very important caveat that you're going to take it serious enough and give it the proper due process and work to, yep. to, to, to try and get a little bit of outperformance. Mm-hmm. And we know that a little bit of outperformance compounds up to very big differences. So in theory, that's definitely the better approach. Mm. As you are very fond of pointing out, and you're right to do so, is that you've also got to factor in behavioural uh, temperamental yep. considerations as well. And the reality, look, we're, we're, we're preaching to the choir with this podcast. So people who are listening <laughs> to this tend to be people who are interested in this kind of stuff. Yeah. But we also acknowledge that for the vast bulk of people, they're just not that interested in this stuff. And I totally get mm-hmm. that. If that's you, um, but you want a very, very large part of all the benefits of what investing in equities can bring, then ETF is the way to go because it's kind of like, yep, Broad-based, low cost, tip some money into it, save up a bit, add some more when I get the chance. If you, That's it, full stop. It's, that's as complicated as it gets. You'll do extraordinarily well. Mm. So I'm not going to, you know, it, it, the, the answer for Jack is, well, it depends on, on who you are as a person. And he's just sort of said he really loves this kind of stuff and he's enjoying it. And if that's the case, I, I, would, I, would, I would certainly consider staying as a, as a direct investor. Mm. Um, because I think there's actually, it's not just about the end, it's about the journey as well to get a bit philosophical. All the people who do well in this space do it because they, 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 they're not doing it for pure financial reasons. They're doing it because there's inherent enjoyment in the process itself. And I'd put, I'd put my hand up there as well. I think if I won the Powerball you know, and have $80 million, I'm still going to, I don't need, I don't even ever invest ever <laughs> again, but I'm going to because I enjoy it. I really enjoy the process. And and uh, yeah, if, if that's the kind of person that you are, I think it's just really rewarding in and of itself, but also in terms of what it what it can mean for you and your and your family. So uh, that, that that to me would be the determinant. If, if you're enjoying mm. it, you're loving it, you've got the time and will to, to invest, um your time and energy into it, yep. go for it. Absolutely go for it. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean go and put all your money on one tiny penny dreadful stock. You've still got to be sensible with how you employ and, and, and you know, the, how you, how you shepherd, shepherd your investments. But, yeah, if you're, if you're willing to do that and you're willing to continually learn and roll with the punches, mm. definitely. I think, I think mm. that, that for me anyway is the way to go. Yeah, good questions. I'm, I'm going to answer some of what you said and probably add a little extra um, uh, the the international question is, is the is the bogey for me. I completely agree with everything you just said. With the with the ex, with the difference of the international bit, yeah. If it yeah. was me, and it is, and that's what I do, I would absolutely want international exposure in my portfolio. Um, I've I've said before, Australia is only two percent of the world's equity markets. It's like going to a real estate agent and say, uh, I'm looking for a house, but I only want to look in suburbs starting with B. Uh, makes no sense, right? Absolutely zero sense. Mm. So. I think international investing is important. I don't think it's absolutely vitally, you know, you're not missing a whole heap if you don't do it, but it's easy diversification. There are some of the best companies on the planet that are outside Australia. Some of the best companies on the planet are inside Australia too. Um, but I, for me, I, I want to have access to that market. It gives me currency, industry, geography, diversification, too good to avoid. So I would absolutely, if, if someone said my choice is an Australian ETF and individual stocks, or an international ETF, 
uh, Australian stocks. I think it's an international stock, sorry. It was an ASX ETF and ASX stocks or an international ETF and ASX stocks. I would absolutely go the international ETF to add to that diversification opportunity. So um, I, I would yeah, do that for sure. Um, just because there's no reason not to. Plus, if you're buying ASX stocks and an ASX ETF, at some point, you're kind of going to be overlapping a little bit depending on what, what shares you're picking. So uh, not necessarily overlapping a lot. If, you, if you're not buying BHP and the banks and you get an ETF, then you're getting both. Um, honestly, my concern about an Australian ETF, I've said this before, is I don't love half it being in banks and miners. Um, so I do actually, I've said before also for my young bloke, have a Vanguard Small Ordinaries ETF, which is exactly designed to do that. It's basically, I think it's your Lord's less the top 100 or something. Um it makes it easy. So I've done a, I've done a small ordinaries to, to minimise that, but get broad diversification across the index. Uh, but if, if you're choosing between the two and you have a, an ASX portfolio already or you're adding to one, I would add the international bit to give me that extra diversification. I So I, I do that as well. So I'm very much, as I just explained, I, I love picking yep. stocks and doing all that kind of stuff. But yep. I'm, also, I'm also very overtly aware of where I have sources of potential edge, how much bandwidth I've got and the rest of it. So my I've I've I don't own any international shares except through ETFs. And that that means I get all that exposure that you speak of yep. and I get to spend my time fishing in the pond. I feel as though I've got right. some, yeah, some nice. kind of advantage in. Yeah. Um and I've often had friends go, Oh, but you're missing out. You know, you could have bought this and you could have and I feel as though it's like, yeah, but don't feel too sorry for me. I mean I've got <laughs> I've got so one of the ETFs I've got. Are you going to mention your fifty bagger again? The beta, no, it's not that, but it's the beta right. shares Nasdaq one hundred ETF. Uh, NDQ is the code, and the reason yeah. for that is that because through Ozsoup, uh, where I've got that uh, part of my money, that's one of the few options they give. There's not a huge selection there, so you know I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into an argument. Please don't write in if there are better uh, flavors of ETF out there, but it's a pretty good one. Yeah. And in the last five years, it's gone from twelve bucks a unit to thirty-two bucks a unit. <laughs> don't, That's a good don't feel, don't feel too sorry. And you know how much work yeah. and research I had to do for that? Zero. Yeah, and exactly. and did it go from thirty-six to thirty-two in the last? Yeah, it, yeah. But it, it previously <laughs> went from twenty-five to twenty. You know, a couple of years ago, and yeah. in twenty eighteen, it went from eighteen to fourteen. You know, just yeah, yeah. it's it's one of those things. It's just so easy, mm-hmm. and it's not like I'm making a huge compromise. I'm still getting. I'm getting exposure to these wonderful markets and I'm getting really, really great returns. In theory, could have I done better if I just picked Apple and Netflix, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. Well, yeah, I could have. But- but I've I've not wasted that time by by putting that that additional bandwidth and air and effort into an area that I that I prefer, namely ASX small cap stocks. Yep, I agree. Can't add to that. Let's move on then to a question from Peter, who says, "Hi there, I have a question for the podcast. Please feel free to use my name if I'm lucky enough for the question to be used on the show." Thanks in advance, Peter. It is. Thanks, Peter. Hi, Scott and Andrew, he says. I first started listening to your podcast at the beginning of the pandemic. Not only have you kept me entertained and sane during lockdown, your friendly banter has given me countless gold nuggets of wisdom and epiphany moments. He thinks it's friendly banter. We actually hate each other. Um, I know... I now realise in the past I've made nearly every investing mistake in the book. Join the club. I have been fortunate that Mr. Market has often rewarded me for making bad decisions. Mm. Yeah, luck is like that, isn't it? Join the club. I was the most clueless when it came to the valuation of shares. But thanks to the pod, I've learned about discounted cash flow analysis and margin of safety. Nice. I will occasionally pick a random stock and run the DCF numbers in Excel to practice my valuation skills, which leads me to my question. Last week, or must be a couple of weeks ago now, Zero was featured in your Stock of the Week episode. 
and mentioned in an answer to a mailbag question regarding how share prices, prices fluctuate over time. I also vaguely recall Ram calling zero stock price eye-watering due to its massive price-to-sales multiple. I'm a big fan of Zero software, and I just happen to use Zero for practicing DCF. Here's a quick summary. Now, I'll just run this through. He used a discount rate of 10%, mm-hmm. 25% annual growth in free cash flow for 10 years, mm. a 50 times multiple of cash flow for selling the shares in the 10th year, mm. and a conservative, he says, I think, margin of safety of 30%. The calculated price target was roughly 60 bucks which is nearly half of the current price, 115, and close to a third of its $155 peak a few months ago. Mm. So on paper, he says, zero seems massively overvalued right now, but I know the team at the full are much smarter than me and wouldn't pick zero as a buy without good reasoning. Are my assumptions wrong? Or does DCF only tell part of the story? Thanks for such an informative podcast and keep up the brilliant work. Peter, he says, P.S., I just finished reading The Psychology of Money from your recommendation. It was fantastic. Great. Uh, I agree. And thank you, Peter, for, for your kind words and thanks for emailing in. Mate, I know that Zero wasn't your pick uh, and I don't know if you have a view on, on Zero's current valuation, but uh, just your your thoughts, your reflections on, on Peter's question. Yeah, so I did make the comment that I thought it was pretty expensive and I also think it's a really awesome business. Um, but, but again, you, valuation matters. So where I think what my advice to Peter would be is ac- mm. actually – your analysis, your analysis is is only as good as the assumptions that you make. So the process, there's no, there's there's absolutely no criticism there. You're doing exactly the right thing. Thinking about what the business can do, putting some assumptions around that. If they're even, you know, roughly right, then then you 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 know your valuation is going to be pretty good. So the, the the where I find the value in doing these kinds of analysis is, and I think this is where this is where a lot of even the pros go wrong. They sort of make these assumptions and then treat them as gospel. Where I think the value is, is actually building one of these models and then testing variety of, of, of assumptions. And what it tells you is it'll actually say, you don't have, you can sort of do it in reverse. So rather than saying, here's what I think will happen and therefore this is the price, you can sort of look at it in a different way and say, well, if the current price is fair, what needs to be true? What combination of factors need to be true? And it's going to be that rate of growth the discount rate and the terminal multiple that you use. So one of those combinations and specifically to the model that, that Peter's built there. So I think it's really interesting to, to start off with your best guess, but then just for fun, <laughs> I've got a, maybe I've got a weird version of fun, but, but, but just throw in some different numbers and see what you, so maybe take, so zero is at about 106 bucks a share at the moment. So what happens, what needs to be mm. true there? It'll well, it'll either need to be a much higher rate of growth than you're assuming or the market will end up paying a much higher value uh, for those uh, multiple, sorry, for those those earnings uh, in the future. Or maybe you're just happy for a lower rate of return and therefore you're discounted at a different amount. Maybe maybe your margin of safety is too aggressive. I don't, I'm not saying any of the above is true, but that's that's where those these analyses can be really, really, really valuable is that you're never going to know for sure. They're all at best going to be educated guesses, but you can, you can, you can get a real good flavour of what combination of factors need to be true for you to do well. And, and what I often do is you, you'll, you run a bunch of scenarios. Where I get really excited is when you run a bunch of scenarios and you sort of have this sort of skew, you sort of have your worst case, most pessimistic scenario and you have your hyper bullish, super everything's going to go brilliant scenario. And when the price 
is at the lower mm. end of that range. Mm. It just, there's a very positive skew there. It's like absolutely it could still go bad, mm. but even if it goes sort of towards my more pessimistic scenario, it's not too much downside. But if it goes half well, there's a lot of upside. I know I always mention this word, but that asymmetry is what you're looking for. I'm looking for a, I'm looking for a, I, because I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the actual reality is going to be. But if, if I, if I can be, reasonably well served under a variety of scenarios, even ones that are far less ambitious than I, that I could choose to sort of plant my flag on. That's a really nice, that is, that is a really favorable set of circumstances. Those kind of fat pictures don't come along too often, but when you do, I think it's Mm -hmm. great. And even if it turns out that it's just like, oh yeah, it turned Mm -hmm. out that, you know, I I should have been more pessimistic. It's not as though you lose 80%, right? Because, (laughs) you know, you you might, you might sort of lose a little bit, but I'm, I'm really happy to make lots and lots of different bets. Bets is probably not the best word to use there where it's sort of like, I know that a, a, a good, uh, a significant proportion are not going to work out well, but it's the whole heads I win, tails I don't mm. lose too much kind of scenario. It's just, it's like, it's like, it's like flipping a loaded coin. I don't know what the next flip is going to be, but I know that on average, if I continue to flip that, the odds are going to be in my favor. And I think that that probabilistic way of thinking, balance, and, and basing those pro- sort of probab- probabilities on a fairly well reasoned skew of different assumptions is going to serve you very, very, very well. I like I that. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a different uh, tangent because you've done a great job talking about the DCF and the approach that you take. I think that's right. Um, so I think uh, the challenge for investors is that cash flow. Um, what's the best word? What the graph looks like or the curve looks like moving forward. Because and, and here's here's the, I, I'm not I don't own zero. I've never personally recommended zero. It's recommended by other services of ours and other other advisors. Um, Zero at the moment is spending an absolute truckload of money on research and development on sales and marketing. There is a view that at some point that money is no longer necessary as the business matures, you can kind of strip all that out and run as business as usual. And so the question for investors is not so much the growth rate from this point, and you've done 25% a year, which is perfect. So I always say perfect, I'm not saying necessarily right, but I understand what you've done. That's a straight line, albeit a straight line and a very large uh, multiple for 10 years. Assuming that this is the sustainable lumber and then it can grow at 25% for whatever reason you think is fair for that period of time. And if you think about the way that the cash flow might change over that period, so I'll take Amazon as an example. I own Amazon shares. For the longest time in the history, in the past, people said, well, Amazon's margin only X and they're only doing Y and they can only do this and it can only grow this much and that's all true. The, prevail- the countervailing view is Amazon's making really, really tiny margins and therefore tiny cash flows. You talk about cash flow rather than margins, so let's talk about cash flows. The cash flows are tiny because they're reinvesting a whole lot of it. If and when Amazon says, we're done, <laughs> we're going to start making some more reasonable margins, they could probably double or triple their profit margin almost overnight. And so I'm not saying Zero will do this at all. It's not a recommendation of mine. I have a really strong view on it. But if you were to believe that, for example, the, the underlying earnings power rather than the reported earnings power or the underlying cash flow rather than the reported cash flow could be double the current level or triple the current level. And then you increased it by some sort of annual growth rate. You would start with a, you'd end with a very, very, very different number. Now, I'm not making that case. And these are easy things to throw out there. I can just say, hey, triple it and look at what happens. Well, of course, but is it going to happen? I don't know. But that's where you need to kind of interrogate the assumptions that you make in terms of what you expect in the future, but also the current level of profitability. It's another, another great example is, and I, I won't mention the, the retailer because I don't want to have a drink this early. Um, <laughs> if you believe that 
your sales growth can continue at a meaningful rate. And these profit margins are small. We talked about profit margins on Friday in terms of a retail making 2% that goes to 3%, right? You can mm. get a 50% increase in profit in one fell swoop just by banking a few, uh, literally one extra cent per dollar of profit, uh, of sales, sorry. If you can bank one extra cent per dollar of sales, you can take your profit margin for 2 to 3%. Now, if you're looking at a retailer that's either gone from loss to profit, so it was losing money, now it's starting to make some money, that operating leverage, that scale can really start to come to to, to uh, fruition really, really quickly. And so it's a really difficult one. Now, there's nothing wrong with your DCF at all, Peter, and you might be dead right. You might be absolutely right that it's overvalued. And that could be absolutely true. Just be mindful though about what the underlying current starting point might be cash flow wise and also what they can do at the end. If you were to say, well, what if zero's margin went up by X percent over that period of time and growth was Y, then you might get a different number. So I would just encourage you to think about the PL in total. Look down the lines and say, so let me let me start that again. When you get to cash flow, cash flow is the result of everything else they do, right? It's the volume, it's the price, it's the expenses, it's all that other stuff. I would always look at a PL and say, hey, what shape do I think this is going to be in in 10 years' time? How fast do I think revenue is going to grow? How fast do I think costs are going to grow? What of those costs might change over that period of time? By the way, the reverse is also true. If you've got a company that's, that's made losses, its cash flow might be higher than it should be because it's got a whole lot of tax losses that it's still not paying tax on, right? So if you, if you, if you add together 10 years worth of tax losses, you could probably get away with paying tax once you're profitable for a few years. And if you don't factor that in your analysis, when the tax bills start to come in, your profit's going to take a really significant hit. So be careful of that as well. But that's what I would do. I'd look at the P&L and say, do I expect this to be the same shape? If that's fine, if that's true, then yeah. Use the current cash flow and just extrapolate it out. If you think that will change, as well as revenue growing, hopefully, and other things, then just keep that in mind as well. Um, I think the other thing, I last one, mate, is just on margin of safety. You said you use a margin of safety of 30%. I think that's perfectly fine. But what you're doing then is choosing what price you would choose to buy the shares for, assuming you're wrong, rather than what's actually worth at a fair value. And that's completely fine as well. So if we say the current price, Andrew said, was $105 now, if you had a 30% margin of safety, you'd say, well, I only want to buy it 70 bucks. doesn't mean it's worth 70. You're just saying, I want that price to make my return seem more attractive to get a better result. And that's completely fine. Just bear in mind, you're doing that deliberately. You're looking for an even better deal than fair value. And that's fine. But well, it doesn't mean the shares necessarily overpriced. Yeah, I think yeah. Although it, 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 I think more to the point of it, just I recognise that my forecasts are fallible, and that, that that's what the margin of safety accounts for. So it's just like I might think it's that, but I, I, I you know, worth a dollar, but I could be wrong. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay thirty percent less to to accommodate for that. So a couple of things just on that, which I think is very reasonable, but. Too aggressive on a margin of safety might mean that you never buy, and that that's that's right exactly. And particularly if you have done that that very wide ranging analysis and you've kind of factored in the good, the bad, the mid case, and everything. It's sort of like you 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 might you might be you, you might be too aggressive there. The other problem that I see, and I've mm. I fight this actually. I think I'm guilty of this a lot. <laughs> is where I add. Margins of safety on margins of safety. Yes, exactly. So exactly. what I do is I say, well, I think this company can grow at 20%, but I'm going to assume 10% just to have a margin yeah. of safety. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think the margins could be this. <laughs> and, then, right. and then I get a price and then I go, and on that price, I want to have a 20% discount. So it's sort of like it becomes, yeah. by the way, if you get that price and you've got mm. all mm. of those margins of safety, that again is a really fat pitch. Yes. It's a really, really, really nice situation. But it has happened to me more than, than I'm comfortable <laughs> with where I 
have been so yeah. worried yeah. about safety that I've never bought the shares. And and that's the other risk. You you, you can be overly conservative. You 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 need to. You need you, you can't be too afraid of risk. Mm. You just don't want to be reckless in your risk taking. I like it. I um a couple of last quick things just to be fun of just the fun of it. You, I was going to mention that margin safety mates. So you've nailed it. Two quick things. Um, the ten years and then a final multiple. Uh, I think is fine. Um, if it's going to keep growing for more than ten years, though. Just be, just you know, you may want to take your numbers out a little bit further, just for the fun of that. Now, ten years, I think you've pretty much done enough. But if some people, and this is not you necessarily, uh, Peter, there's two ways of doing a discounted cash flow. You can either assume a multiple you're prepared to pay at the end, uh, which is fifty times cash flow, whatever the number ends up being, or you can choose a terminal growth value of a certain growth rate, effectively in, in perpetuity after that. The only thing I probably would say on that is just being mindful that. If they're fast-growing businesses, if it's growing at 25% a year and then year 11, we're going to say, and therefore after this is going to go, we're going to pay some arbitrary multiple of, of cash flow. Uh, you, have to, you have to draw a line at some point. But if you draw that line too quickly, um, Google was a great example where a lot of people have done a five-year DCF. Amazon's another one, right? Well, maybe it grow 20% for five years, but after that, it probably won't. Now, 25 years later, we're seeing that it can still continue to grow. So there are businesses where you want to be careful. You don't kind of rule off the growth phase too quickly. Equally, you can do it for too long. We talked about the banks on Friday where people did that as well. Uh, so just, just be a little bit careful of that. I tend to use a terminal value rather than a multiple of cash flow of the last uh, last number. So it's a different way of doing a DCF, but have a think about that as well, just to think about how long that growth will continue and how you want to start to taper that off. When is appropriate to taper that off? I don't have a view on zero, but just be, be thoughtful about that. Oh, just well. very very quickly on that though. I think Peter has actually, so, so assuming a terminal PE of 50 actually assumes at that point in time, it still has a pretty good growth prospect because- Great. If it didn't, the, the terminal PE yes. should probably be something like you know, yes, 16 yes, or correct. 20 or correct, something correct. like that. So, so I, I hear what you're saying, mm-hmm. and, I, and you're not wrong. I, I would yeah. just say the way you factor that in is by right. is by the, the level of multiple that you choose at, at that point. If you think absolutely right. mature at that stage, go with something low. If you think a business that retains a good growth runway, then then you're entirely legitimate to, to choose a, a higher terminal PE. Love it. Let's get a question. That was a great question, Peter, and really fun to get our teeth into. Uh, one from Danny. Hi, Scott and Ram. Still loving the pod. Thank you, mate. And it wouldn't be a decent week without a good old rant from Ram. Don't encourage him, people, for the love of God. You don't know how hard I have to work to keep him constrained of what just he does, man. Um, I decided to change mortgage providers last year, says Danny. And basically, while I got a better rate, good man, my old provider wouldn't release the mortgage on my paid-off holiday home against my home loan that I have 75% equity in unless I paid them $300 in fees. So I told him to go jump and remortgage with Athena in the process, saving about half a percent in the interest rate. Nice. It is now 1.89%. Well done. So I start seriously patting myself on the back until recently when I was listening to a podcast that mentioned the federal government's authorised deposit institutions and the $250,000 government deposit guarantee. Mm. I know now that Athena loans are not listed on this, and my question is, what would happen to my fifty grand in redraw if they went belly up? Full on from Danny. Hmm. Well, you might know this better than me, but I assume that if they're not part of that scheme, then you don't get the backing, and therefore, if it goes belly up, then you're out of pocket. Yeah, I I think that's probable. Uh, I don't want to badmouth Athena, so the question will be asked them directly. They will tell you. Um, the good thing about being a borrower. Uh, rather than lenders, if they go belly up, you yeah. owe them, they don't owe you. So that's positive. 
But having a large redraw in that circumstance, I don't honestly know the answer, Danny. So uh, I would I would just go straight to Athena, ask them the question. Uh, it's an important question. Uh, they are rather unlikely to go completely belly up, but it's not a, a, a no-brainer. And I would absolutely be careful about that because 50 grand is a lot of money to dust if the worst came to worst. So Athena would, I'm sure, say they are completely conservatively managed. I'm sure that's true. Um, so I have no view on Athena at all, uh, positively or negatively. I have no reason to believe they are anything other than completely credible and reasonable and, and well capitalized, but I don't know the answer and, and neither do we. So I would I would just ask them that question directly. Uh, I can't imagine they have that coverage. So I would assume that it's at risk if that was to happen. Uh, the same... <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. The law may net those off and say your net exposure to Athena is X, because uh, you still owe them money, right? At the end of the day, if you've got a mortgage, you owe them money. Um, would the would the would the rules treat the fifty grand differently for the outstanding mortgage? Possibly. Would it be rolled up and they say net net is you know you owe them fifty grand less than you did? That's the net amount you owe them. Possibly as well. But that's a question. Unfortunately, mate, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. I'd rather say I don't know than, than make it up. If if hypothetically, mate, if if they did go belly up and you were left mm. with you still on a net basis owe them some money. Yep. It's still very unlikely that the the liquidators would come in and sell your property. It'd be more that they would yeah. sell your loan to someone Correct. else. So someone else. someone would they they call it buying the book. So it's just like you'd be transferred to a different lender with your obligations transferred across to them. It's so it's it's probably pretty unlikely that that someone because of Athena's woes would come in and just liquidate you. Yes, um, correct, correct. And even if they try to liquidate you, they would they would, what will happen is they would say your mortgage is now due in full. Pay us mm-hmm. back, please. And over that period of time, you could just simply refinance with somebody else and use that to pay it out anyway. So yeah, yeah. The, the first step is not going to be, we're going to sell your house. It would be, yeah. you'd have to pay your mortgage by the end of next month. That'd be stressful, right? Because you're like, oh, bloody hell, what do I do? Uh, the reality is going to be that a decent broker or a decent bank will be able to refinance that loan in that period of time for you. As long as you're not, you know, extreme LVRs and stuff, um, you're, you're, in a, you're in a pretty good place. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to a question from Mark. He says, Hi, Scott. Geared ETFs are different than you perceive. The TQQQ, it's a leveraged uh, NASDAQ ETF in the USA, is leveraged compared to the index because it uses derivatives, not because you borrow money to buy the ETF. Same with gear on the ASX. The gearing is not that you borrow money to buy it. You do not borrow money. The ETF is geared by using derivatives. There can be no margin call as you're not borrowing money. There may be decay as they use options, but I can't prove that it's much to worry about. That's from Mark. Uh, Mark, I think I'm not we sure said that came, though, didn't we? Yeah, this might have come through before. I think it did actually, but he might have been an episode behind. Um, so that's exactly what we did say. There is absolutely zero obligation on the investor, but the internal machinations of the fund can put your money to some degree at risk, depending on how the derivatives are managed, the obligations of it, all that kind of stuff. I think it's a huge issue, but it's a risk that you need to be mindful of. And my biggest concern, uh, as always, is to make sure that investors understand that these things aren't as simple as they may otherwise appear. Not because, by the way, beta shares or anybody else is trying to screw you over or lie to you, just because you kind of go, oh, no margin calls. It must be fine then. Can't possibly lose money. Now, maybe, <laughs> or, or maybe not, uh, but just be just be mindful of that. It, it is going to move because of those derivatives uh, in, a, in a very different way to the underlying instrument and 
depending on how long, how far, how much, what it costs, all that kind of stuff, there is no guarantee that you get yourself out of it. I'll give you an example of the Gear ETF, by the way. It was $29.77 a unit on the 21st of February. If that date sounds familiar, that's because that was the peak of the market before the subsequent fall. That $29.77 became $11.43 at what I think is the bottom of the 27th of March. So that's, you know, the market fell 38%. This ETF, uh, well, more than halved. So you're talking about 2020? I still had 22 on, did I? Okay. 2020, the COVID crash. The COVID crash. 2020, okay. Uh, so, you know, just 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 be careful of that. Um, it, it is leveraged both ways. In this case, it bounced back fine. And so, you know, again, like the uh, like the overall market, nothing to necessarily worry about other than the cost of those derivatives because they do come at a cost, right? And so if, the, if there is a cost, an ongoing cost for those things, that's coming out of your return. And if you don't get the benefit of the gearing, but you've got to pay the cost of it, uh, then it can it can uh, yeah give you give you some more grief than otherwise might be the case. There's a there's a very good rule in life as in investing, which is there's no free lunch. <laughs> yeah, and if it sounds too good to be true, it's too yep. good to be true. And, and I know I know the listener's not making this claim, but when yep, yep, yep. when you have a product that says, hey, we get all of the upside, all the advantages of of, <laughs> of leverage, but there's no cost. There, there, there is a cost to it. And again, we can we can you can debate how significant that is and whether it compensates yep. you for the potential yep. upside. But there's a cost, right? There, there is always a cost, and and no one's, no one's got some secret formula of giving you all of the benefits mm-hmm. of a, an approach without any of the costs and risks of it. It just, it doesn't exist. And I'll give you. So I think that's right. And to be fair, though, um, Bitch is not saying that at all. So no, uh, Andrew, you just said, yeah. You know, if someone says to you, and that's absolutely true, if someone does, I just want to be really, really clear for mostly for uh, legal reasons, but also just cause, to be fair to everybody else, uh, Bitch is not saying that. It is worth saying though, mate. I just did the quick numbers. If you take the top of the um, the beta shares uh, geared product, this is what the gear uh, ETF we're talking about, uh, $29.77 at the peak, now $26.77. The shares of four of the gear ETF has fallen 10.3%. Over that same period of time, the ASX 200 is actually up 2 point something percent, 1.9%, something like that. Yeah. So just it's just worth remembering that point to point, uh, now, if we have a massive bull run, gear will do better for sure. Much better. If we have a massive crash, then gear will do much worse. That's much worse. the point of it. Mm-hmm. But also from point to point, just literally taking that, uh, I just chose those numbers. I, I, they may not be particularly flattering, but they shouldn't be super unreasonable because it's now, it's, oh man, we're almost exactly two years away from the peak pre-crash. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So in those two years, you've made 2%, which is not much on the ASX 200, but you've lost 10% on the gear ETF. And that's probably in all likelihood uh, it might be the the makeup of the fund, but it's probably the cost of that of that hedge. Almost right? so certainly the cost. Just be just be yep. careful. That, you know, there's not it's not a uh, uh, gearing sounds smart. Multiplying your gains sounds smart. I think the market will go up. That sounds smart. But like margin lending in general, if it's not going up fast enough to pay, to pay your borrowing costs, mm-hmm. or in this case the derivative costs, to be really really clear for Mark and others, I'm not for a second saying you're going to get a margin call. You're not, but it doesn't mean you can't suffer in asset value the cost of those derivatives, which will approximate the cost of an equivalent borrowing to some degree because that's how those derivatives are priced. Mm. Um, no one's giving you free derivatives for the sake of, sake of it, right? They're taking their pound of flesh to yep. give you that exposure. So that's the way it works. Yep. Question from Luke. Hi, Scott and Ram. I thoroughly enjoy the podcast on my driving to work. Thank you, mate. Here we go again. A question for the podcast about leverage. Our listeners love leverage. Mm. It has come up a couple of times. As Scott has mentioned a couple of times that if you could bring forward his contributions for the next X number of years with low interest and no margin calls, that he would do it in a heartbeat. That's absolutely true. The NAB Equity Builder product, he says, seems to allow this. 
and has a 3.75% interest rate and no margin calls. The trade-off is forced principal payments, which the traditional margin loan does not have. What are your thoughts on this product? I've hmm. had this come up a few times, mate. I don't dislike it. Do you have a view on the equity builder? I'm not familiar with the product, no, but cool. I, my interest is piqued by, by what was just said. <laughs> so exactly. no margin calls, low interest rate, Mm-hmm. And the only cost is that I have to have a fixed repayment schedule in the same kind of sense I might with a mortgage. Essentially. So huh. principal and interest payment. So you've got to, you've also got to pay the interest. That's so there is there is a well, margin loan has as Luke said, doesn't have principal repayments. Uh this one does. You've got to pay principal and interest. You can't you can't use the income flow for that. So it's a little less attractive than a margin loan in terms of the cash obligations. Of course, it's much more attractive than you can't have a margin call. So there is a bit of a, a put and take. The interest rate's pretty bloody good, mate, can I say? 3.75 compared to, now, I don't know for how long. Oh, sorry, that's the other thing. They discount the rate for the life of the loan, but they don't guarantee the rate to stay that low for the life of the loan, is my mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. So you've also got some interest rate risk, which again, you have with a margin call, but if this is a, if this is a fixed term, uh, then you have you have got that issue. So just be be a little bit mindful of that. Um, I, I So the, the standard variable currently is 5.75%. Now, here's the um, they they have this three and a half three point seven five cent special rate, right? Two percent discount, and in the top of the line, in the um, at the top of the page on the internet, it says two percent special rate discount for the life of the loan. That sounds good, and then down further it says the special rate is a two percent discount off the standard variable rate. The discount will apply for the life of the loan, or until varied. Or withdrawn by NAB, <laughs> which is not quite the life of the loan, is my understanding. I don't mind NAB, I have nothing against them, but that's uh, that's an important thing to be mindful of. So when do they take it away? I don't know, but also that variable rate will change, right? So let's say the RBA cash rate goes up two percent. Well, you're in, you're on the hook for another two percent, and even assuming NAB passes that on, your rate goes from three point seven five to five point seven five, which is probably not even a terrible rate. And maybe if you're lucky, you, you invest in businesses that benefit from inflation, or you can make that pay. I don't I don't hate it. I really don't. Um, I'm not. I'm not a million percent sure that I, I. I if you're going if if you're going to do what I said, and I say it a bit tongue in cheek, but I'm also genuine. If if it was, I was offered, you know, a, a, a marginal loan at a decent rate, and I could I could put all my you know payments up front, I would do it for sure, for sure, for sure. Would I want to capitalise the interest though, or let it run? I'd probably let the interest run and pay it with dividends. So there's that. That being said, you might be able to get the dividends out of this anyway and use it in a roundabout way to pay them. So you have to you'd have to check that one. I don't hate it. Um, I would happily look into it. I see no massive uh, massive concerns. If it's a fixed loan length, but the rate is variable, you're kind of navigating both of those, right? If, you, if I'm locked into a 10-year loan, uh, but I, I, I have to accept whatever rate they pass me onto me as a variable loan rate, that's not spectacular. Um they also retain ownership of the investments. And I'm not sure what would happen if you were to default on the repayments. I don't know. I assume it would be fair that you got whatever you've paid off thus far, a bit like a home loan. You know, they, they, uh, if, you, if they bank foreclose on you, they sell your house and give you whatever's left over. Um, that would be fair. I think that's probably right. Uh, but just be, just be careful of that as well. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I think uh, the other thing is the, there's also an LVR. So I've talked about borrowing everything. Uh, the the maximum LVR seems to be seventy five percent on this one, so you're still having to put some money in up front, which is fine. I think it's it's like putting a home loan deposit on. You know, you, you got to pay a deposit, then you borrow the rest. Not terrible, uh, but again, just just be mindful. You've got to have some amount of cash to stump up up front, 
and then they'll lend you the rest, which is, again, completely fine, but just be mindful of that as well. Mm. Anything else on that, mate? No, that all makes sense. Cool. I, but I, it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I hate margin loans. I don't hate this one. So that's something. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go from, um, uh, we go, oh, this is, this is great. You'll love this one. This is from Stacey. Uh, and Stacey is very kind. Uh, she says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Just wanted to send an email to ask a mailbag question, but to also say thank you for your fantastic podcast. I'm a 34-year-old woman and have been investing outside super for just over a year now. Honestly, I'm kicking myself as I didn't realize how accessible investing and the stock market was until my sister told me she'd opened a raise account and was buying into their portfolio. This opened a rabbit hole for me, says Stacey. And since then, I've literally consumed every piece of investing information I can get my hands on, e.g. podcasts, books, online courses, webinars, etc. And I just can't get enough. I'm obsessed. Once I'd gotten my head around the investing world and began micro-investing, I felt secure enough in what I had learned so far to open up a self-wealth account for my husband and I, and I now dollar cost average into four ETFs. I've also opened a miners account for our three-year-old and buy into one ETF at this stage for him for his future. This is awesome, Stacey. I'm stoked. What I particularly love about your podcast, oh, thank you, about your podcast is you don't dumb it down like many other podcasts out there for beginners. Don't get me wrong, these beginner podcasts are fabulous and help me get started on building my knowledge and portfolio. But unlike yours, they rarely give me the incentive to go further and do research myself into topics or jargon you use that I don't understand. So thank you very much for pushing me to build my knowledge of investing even deeper. So, she says, Stacey, this brings me to my question. Despite having consumed as much about investing as I can to this point, I can't bring myself to buy an individual stock. There are three I am considering, with Nike being my first preference. At this stage, I do not see myself picking a heap of individual stocks to invest in, and I'm comfortable with my ETF approach thus far. However, I just really have a desire to own individual shares in Nike, but I can't pull the trigger despite what a phenomenal company it is and believe it will be in future. How do I overcome this? I'm legitimately scared to buy into individual companies. Is this a thing? Am I normal? Lol. Mm -hmm. Do I just forget about it and keep doing what I'm doing with ETFs or do I take the plunge? I've tried to learn about company valuations and earnings and have applied this to Nike's situation but ended up still no more confident in my decision. Do you and Andrew happen to have a sorry, happen to have a company must-haves checklist that I can use to help me decide if they're a good company to invest in for the long run? So sorry for the long email. Don't be sorry. Thank you again for your fabulous podcast. Best regards, Stacey. I love this for so many reasons, Stacey. I love that you're female and investing. I love that you're young and female and investing. I love that your sister got you into it. You guys managed to find a way to kind of work together on this stuff. I love that you're building a portfolio with ETFs. Your dollar cost averaging, mate, you are nailing it. You are absolutely smashing this investing thing. So... Uh, first thing I would say, I'll throw it around in a second. But first thing I just want to say is, if you don't get to that point, that's okay too. You will, if you keep dollar cost averaging, keep building your wealth, you retire in 30, 35 years, you are going to nail it as long as you can keep saving and keep investing. So mate, firstly, uh, be encouraged, uh, keep doing what you're doing at the very, very least. But Andrew, how can you convince Stacey, how can you convince yourself start buying individual stocks? Well, the good thing is it doesn't have to be a binary decision. So mm. if you want to slowly dip your toe into the water, you know, keep 95% doing what you're doing and then and then put 5% directly into Nike or a particular stock. Mm. It means that even under the worst case scenario and it goes to zero, which I think is very hard to assume for, for something like Nike, mm. um, you, you, you're not wiped out. You know, 95% of your money is still fine and probably over time, very likely over time, that'll continue to go. It doesn't, it's mm. not, 
it's not a big risk when you look at it like that. Mm. Um, so I, I think there's, I think it's very sensible. I, I, I totally get the urge, particularly when you're, when you've got a lot of affinity for a particular brand and company and you want that mm. ownership, mm. I totally get it. And, and I, I would encourage you to help, to help scratch that itch without, you don't have to radically change what you're doing. Just, just throw a little mm. bit mm. in there and it, it'll, 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 it'll help give you those sort of emotional, mm. uh, benefits that you want by being a direct owner in a brand that you really love without really doing much in terms of your risk profile, you know? So it's, I I think, I think that would probably be where I would start, continue to learn and read and whatever. And then as, as you find you get more confidence and the interest stays high, then you can, then you can, you can move further down that spectrum where it is more and more indirect, uh, indirect um, investments rather than purely in indirect <laughs> investments, if I can put it that way. Does that make sense? It does. I like that a lot, mate. Um, I was going to say, Stacey seems to be not worried about changing her entire portfolio over just, she could just a bit scared of buying any stock, any amount of any stock because it just feels like it's too risky and it's, not it's hard to be sure and all that sort of stuff. No, honestly, honestly you, you, could, you could put, you could take, you know, 2% of your portfolio and put it in the most hyper risk investment out there and it goes to zero and you've still got 98% of your wealth. You know, it's all else being equal. Um, but she's still scared about that, right? She's still saying, well, I don't want to lose that money. Like, I, I don't want to lose any money. I want to make it all work for me. It feels risky buying shares in Nike. If it goes to zero, as you say, it won't. But let's say it did um, or something else, something more super risky. I don't want to take that risk. I, I don't want to lose that money. I feel like good about ETFs. Uh, she's taking that she's no. taking that risk anyway because within that ETF, there's going to be plenty of companies that do badly. It's just that you don't see it because it's averaged out. And it's that average holistic sort of broader scope that you that you need to take. It, this is what knocks new investors, yep. not necessarily Stacey, but so many new investors out. They, they do a bunch of really smart stuff and then a few of their investments go really bad and they go, oh, you know, I didn't yeah. expect that. Yeah. And yeah. I just, I, I would say you have to expect it. And I would say mm. this, if I was speaking to Warren Buffett, you know, not that he needs my advice. He's probably, but, you know, probably okay, but he's, yeah, I you, you know, it, <laughs> it's not a question of, am I going to make some bad investments? You are 100% guaranteed <laughs> to make some right. bad investments. I, yeah, You know, yeah. it's sort of like, it always surprises me. You said before mm, that, you know, mm, a particular mm. client got upset because mm. one of your recommendations hasn't so far done well. And it's like, why, where's the surprise there? Like that, that is mm. totally normal for anyone, yeah. for anyone. Yeah. So it, it's it's one of those things that I think we mm. need to – again, it is part of the overall cost. This is – what matters is how everything does on average. Yep. And the best way to improve that overall average – it's really counter, counterintuitive yep. – is to take more risk. Hmm. It, it, like it feels like if I'm taking more risk, well, then almost by definition, that's, <laughs> that's going right. to potentially sort of hurt me. It, it's that's well, right. well, no. In fact, there's a lot of good maths and, and research and mm-hmm. everything out there that shows that actually a well-constructed portfolio, by adding in, I actually heard the argument. Tell me not to get down this rabbit hole, but with Bitcoin the other day, is that oh, one of the no, one of the arguments is, is is added in, and then when you do the maths and you assume certain volatility, and it actually lowers the overall risk because there's some uncorrelated aspects of that. So, so don't, I, I, I get, I totally get, I get the sentiment. I really do. But honestly, Stacey, a couple percent just to get your toe in the water, scratch that itch. You're not taking the, the risk you're taking is infinitesimally small. I, I would argue it's, it's, it's very different. And to, she's not saying this, but to, you know, sell half of it and put it all into dodgy brothers, <laughs> tin pot mine in WA or something <laughs> exactly. like that. Um, but, but yeah, a small allocation, totally sensible. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you, mate. I'm gonna add some more color, as the cool kids say. Um, so here's the thing, Donna. I 
Oh, man. I'm going to tread really carefully here and, and really authentically and hope that my meaning comes across nicely. Uh, blokes are arrogant enough to think we know the answers. Women tend to be concerned that maybe they won't get the answers right. And both of those tend to make us each and together uh, imperfect humans, unsurprisingly. So there's a reason a whole lot of blokes are on trading desks in Wall Street because they are just like, you know, the testosterone and the carry-on and the bravado and the, yeah, I can go and trade, you know, $84 billion Hubris, of gold futures. arrogance. And, right, yeah, exactly. All of that. Women tend to do, and again, this is massive generalizations, right? So that's why I'm asking you to take it, take it as I, I intend it. Women tend to be more... Uh, worried about not being right. It, it, it's shown through in things like, you know, blokes will apply for jobs they're completely unqualified for. Women won't apply for a job until they're massively overqualified and they're still worried they might not be the right person for the job. And again, horrible generalizations, but stick with me. So the concern I think I'm, I'm hearing from you is not unreasonable, it's not uncommon, which is, but what if I'm wrong? What if I make a mistake? And that's exactly what Ram's talking to is, bottom line, you actually will, and that's okay. If you think about your ETF, and again, Andrew made this point, but I'm just gonna make it slightly differently. You are buying a portfolio that's pre-created for you, which will include winners and losers, but the total of which will go up over time. And you'll feel good about that and you should because it's a great way to invest. I know at The Motley Fool, I've said this before, I think I even said it on Friday, uh, we have people who I will say, our scorecard is 100 picks long. We recommend buying at least 15 or 20 of them. We recommend starting with a set five, build your portfolio, build your diversification, all that kind of stuff so that when we make mistakes, or you make mistakes, one, two, or three mistakes won't derail your portfolio and you'll do well overall. Uh, my, my scorecard at the Monthly Fool, uh, I'm both not, not uh, I'm not scared to share it, but I'm also horrified to share it. One of my picks is down more than 90%. I completely screwed that up. I stuffed that up horribly, mate. I made a huge mistake. That sucks. And members who bought that stock are down a lot and they are probably cranky and they're probably justified to be cranky because I just completely screwed it up. Our scorecard overall is up and up really nicely, beating the market. Uh, last I checked, about 60% average gain for share advisor, about 40% for the market. That's not an annualized number. That's a total number since inception. Uh, we, we average every single recommendation we make. So overall, I'm actually really doing a good job for our members, I think. And I think I could say that without being uh, too uh, pretend humble about it. Yeah, I'm pretty proud that we're doing a good job and I'm, I'm proud for our members. And I'm glad for our members. They're making some money. But if you just bought one stock, you're down. That's, I think, like your ETF approach, mate. You're worried about if I buy one stock, will it be down? Yes, possibly, absolutely. And if you can't and don't want to do that, that's okay too. Love Nike from a distance and buy your ETFs. If you just don't want to have the stress, you don't want to lose the sleep at night thing, you just don't want to have to face it, then just give it a miss. For sure, give it a miss. Uh, but if you think about your portfolio is, <laughs> if you, let's say, you got an ASX ETF with, I don't know, let's say it's the ASX 200, you got 200 companies. If you had Nike, you got 201 companies. And that's how you need to think about your portfolio, right? Not the individual position or the individual decision, but am I more often than not being right? And when I'm right, are my winners making me more than my losers are costing me? If the answer is yes, you're doing it well. If the answer is no, by the way, as it will be for some people, maybe investing is not for you in terms of stock picking and just go back to your ETFs and that's fine too. So bottom line, I wouldn't be too concerned about adding individual companies. I would encourage you to do it if you, if you think you want to. Do it with a really small amount of money. Brokerage in the US is, is effectively free depending on your broker. Buy 50 bucks worth if you want to. Just But when you do it, here's what I would suggest. Either train yourself to think about your portfolio as, as everything, 201 companies, not just ETF plus one company, Nike, and that one matters. Because your chance of being right about one company are actually pretty, no, not great, right? The average investor, or sorry, good investor, as Peter Lynch says, is right only six times out of 10. If you buy one, it's like tossing a coin once. 
50-50 chance of heads or tails, but you're only going to get 100% heads or 100% tails if you toss the coin once. That's what's going to happen. Uh, and which is fine, but you also just need to recognise that's the game you're playing. If you buy 10 companies or 20 companies, then you start to build up a portfolio large enough that the averages should play out in your your favour on those individual stocks. Um, so that's that's probably how I'd, I'd think about it. I think Andrew's right. Do ETF plus others, plus stocks if you want to. If Nike's one you want to buy it, then I wouldn't discourage you from doing it. Again, I can't give you new drill advice, tell you whether you should or not. But I wouldn't discourage you from doing it if you want to. But I wouldn't just buy one unless you're happy to say, Nike could be great, could be terrible. I don't know. It's probably not going to be terrible, by the way. It's Nike. Um, but, you know, it, it could suffer from long periods of investor dislike. It could suffer from short-term drops in profit from fad or fashion or execution or something else. Do I think it's going to be good over the long term? Pretty sure it will be. Um, but just be mindful that's going to happen. If you buy one stock, you're going to feel it. If you had to, last thing I'll say, if you had to buy an ETF, instead of buying one ETF, you bought, you pressed the ETF button and 200 individual stocks turned up in your portfolio, right? You'd rather rather have one ETF, which was the Vanguard ASX 300 ETF. You had 300 companies. I think you, were, you had them all separately. You look at half of them and go, oh my God, I'm losing money on half that ETF. That's terrible. And that's human nature. But because we don't do that, you don't see the really sucky, um, what's a good one in RAM recently? Uh, what's fallen a lot? Afterpay. Oh, it's gone now. Let's, let's go with Afterpay though. Afterpay would have been far, part of the ASX 300. It fell by two thirds. ETF owners don't go, bloody Afterpay, hate that stock, it's a terrible thing. They go, oh, market's up 2%, I'm up 2%. That's pretty good. And that's kind of the way you need to think about your portfolio, whether you credit individually, whether you use ETFs or whether you do a combination of both. Yep, I agree. Question on Twitter. Might finish off with this one. Uh, from Hit Me Live is the uh, is the Twitter handle. I don't have a name, so let's go with that. Just started to listen to the podcast. Good rant platform. <laughs> I guess this is becoming a, a theme, mate. Wondering if something. So we we talked about investors. Um, uh, we, we asked the, the kind of spurious rhetorical question based on a headline uh, whether individual investors should be banned from investing was kind of the um, the retail shareholders. Mm-hmm. And, and so Hit Me Live says, wondering if something like an automated stop loss order for unsophisticated or small investors might be one way to protect share market investors, i.e. not banning individual investors but building in concrete guardrails. What do you reckon, mate? Definitely 100% not. Um, what? So here's the rant for today. Don't you want to? Don't you want to stop people losing money? I hate stop you? loss, stop loss orders. It's such a divisive thing. People get making a loss. People really get divided on this, and people get angry when I <laughs> say do. it. No, all my they response do. is, "You do you." But for me, I hate them, <laughs> and I, I think, I think it's this false mm-hmm. security that it's just like, oh, I'm automatically going to get sold out if the price drops. Well, first thing to say is that just because the price drops doesn't mean that the real value of the company is dropped. That's Something yeah. that we just go on and on and on about. The best companies in the world have huge drawdowns all of the time. If you had a stop loss on, let's go with the well hackneyed example. If you had a stop loss on Amazon, ten percent yep. or twenty percent below yep. the last traded price, you would have been knocked out half a dozen times, and, and you would have missed out on all of the gains. So there's the first mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. The second point is, I can still sell out manually. I, I, I open my smartphone and I press a three buttons and I'm out. Like, wh- why do I need to automate that process? If something has fundamentally changed, I can still sell. It's not like the only way to get out is through this automated unthinking thing that's just going to fire off no matter what happens to be the context of, of the situation. Mm. So I really hate that. What it, what it generally does is, is, is it just – volatility is something that should be seen as, as, as a source of opportunity. That mm. is giving you – although it's very scary, it does give you the opportunity to buy things at much better prices – but it turns that into a, a, a very serious weakness by selling you out every time yeah. every time there's a wobble. 
I mean, what, right. what, a, what a crazy thing to – I'm not trying to be too critical here of the listener because everyone sort of says brokers love to, to propagate these things. And I, here's a bit of inside baseball. Brokers get paid when you trade. They don't get paid when you sit on your shares for years and years and years. Mm, mm. So here's a product that will make you trade more. Don't ask the barber if you need a haircut, right? <laughs> they're going to have a vested interest in you using these things and they're going to yep, sell it yep. to you by saying that you can manage risk. And it's not. Mm-hmm. Risk, volatility is not risk. Risk is the chance of permanent capital loss. Mm-hmm. Volatility is just, just par for the course. Mm-hmm. I hate stop loss orders. I hate them. I know that a lot of people right now will be yelling at their phone saying you're an idiot and, and I get it. Some people <laughs> love them, but I really don't. I, I really hate them. Yeah, I I share I share your dislike and distaste for them. Uh, you're right about the brokers who make money making you trade and giving you solutions. Um, I I, lo- I love that uh, brokers provide their most traded stocks reports. It's not supposed to matter, right? Other people doing this. Okay, well, what are you telling me that you know they're buying stuff? Oh, they're just doing it. Yeah, most people underperform yeah. the market too. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, so look, I I don't I don't love that. Um, the challenge with stop loss orders is Andrew's point. If you invest in a quality business, to even take even take the um, it, it take a, take a market, to, take a broad based ETF. Well, I was going yeah. oh, well, to just use the ASX two hundred, right? So here is the problem: everyone who this is this is this is hubris and arrogance writ large. And if you you need to you need to be in control of that to invest in general, even more with this one. The market dropped thirty eight percent between the 19th of February and about the 27th of March. We just said that, right? In 2020. Over that period, you could have been stopped out at a 10% loss and avoided the falls. Fine. When were you going to buy it back in? Were you going to buy back in when the market fell another 10% because it was obviously cheap? If you were and it was still cheap, why would you sell it in the first place? Are you going to sell it, you know, are you going to buy in when it's 30% cheaper? Are you going to buy in after it's come back 10% or 20% or 30%? If you're not going to be brave enough to buy back in when the prices are down, then if you, if you are, you don't need the stop loss because it's going to come back. And if you need the stop loss, then you're not going to be someone who's brave enough, almost by definition, to buy back in at those low prices. So they stop you out on the way down, don't get you back in. And so you're, you're literally locking in. It's, it's the old, you know, can't go broke taking a profit. Well, in this case, you can go broke taking a loss because you take the loss and you don't buy back in. People say, I'll oh, wait till everything's okay again. There were some smart investors who didn't use stop loss. I've, I've never meant, named them on this podcast because it's not fair. There are some really, really smart investors who said in February and March, I'm selling everything and I'm not buying back in until COVID's over. Well, guess what? <laughs> the market's up 65-ish percent since those falls and COVID ain't over, baby. And by the time it is, maybe the market's up again, maybe it's not. So, you know, the 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 people get way too smart for themselves. Now, I like the concept behind the, the question, mate. The concept is if retail investors are going to get freaked out at a lower price, at least getting them out early is better than later. And I actually agree with that. I think it's absolutely true. If you're someone who will sell out eventually at 35% down and say, that's it, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to crystallize my loss and walk away. Then yeah, you would have been much better to be stopped out at a 10% fall rather than a 30% fall. Absolutely true. But if you're going to try and make money in investing, the only way to do it, in my opinion, is to make your peace with the realities of the market. You've got to make your peace with the volatility. You can't try, trying to avoid it is a mugs game because you're not going to. You're just not going to. Maybe you get lucky once, maybe you get lucky twice. The third time is going to kick you in the backside. You cannot ignore, you cannot avoid volatility. All you can do is make your peace with it. And if you're trying to play with stop losses, what you're really saying is I'm going to try and outsmart the market and you're just not going to. I'm not going to. Andrew's not going to. The smartest people in the world who are some of these investors who are just super smart guys who missed the COVID problem, uh, the, the COVID recovery, 
because they're waiting for the pandemic to end. Like it's as soon as you start to say, I'm smarter than the average bear and here's what I'm going to do because I'm smarter, you're in trouble. What you need to do is say, I can be more temperamentally aware. I can make myself do a better job of managing my emotions. That I can do. And I can do that better than most people. I'm not going to be smarter than most people because the future is unknowable. Even if you are smarter than those people, you can't predict the future any more than anybody else can. It's, it's a most game to try. I, I, I said, I love the intent. I'm not, I'm not going to be critical at all of someone who says, can we help them not lose a fortune? In perfect world, maybe. In the reality, no. Because if they use a stop loss, they're going to be freaked out. They're not going to buy back in. So you're, you're, you're compounding the problem rather than resolving it, in my opinion. It comes back to the idea of no free lunch. You know, it's just yeah. like if there's a mechanism out there that can reduce all the de- – or <laughs> much, much yep. more significantly limit the downside with no cost. Yep. I mean, it doesn't exist. It can't exist. Yep. You know, there is yep. a, the cost to that is, is that you just get – as I said before, you get sold out on really high-quality businesses. They're going to be worth considerably more mm-hmm. in the future. And I know everyone goes, oh, yeah, but I'll just buy back in. It's like, well, Mm, mm, if you can manually choose to buy back in, you can also manually choose to sell out if the thesis is broken (laughs) or there's been something. You just, you don't need to automate it because now you're making, Mm, mm, you've explicitly said, I am making an investment decision, not based on any underlying, the merits of the underlying business. I'm making it entirely on the gyrations of the market. mm, mm. And maybe if you're a day trader and, you know, there's a different consideration, but I'm talking about people who are investing. And mm-hmm. and if you're investing, stop loss is just a stupid, stupid thing. I make a list. I do this. Uh, I make a list of the things that I, would cause me to sell out, and not nowhere on that list is that the price drops. You know, the price may drop as a as, <laughs> as a consequence yeah. of uh, you know the CEO caught with a meth pipe or something. And let's not go into that story because that's sort of doing the rounds lately. But you know, it oh, it, it it it's it's. It, it's not – people just tend to – we get so fixated on these day-to-day yeah. prices and we just we, – yeah. we miss the forest for the trees. We're actually yeah. – you're buying a real-world business, you know, and mm-hmm. the market's just this infantile, juvenile, hyper-bipolar sort of entity that's just going to like flick all around the place. So it just – if, if yeah. that's going to drive your decisions, I guarantee you you're going to do very badly. Guarantee you. And I know it sucks and it'd be great to sort of say, yes, you can have all of this wonderful wealth building capacity without <laughs> taking too much risk, but but you can't if your definition of risk is volatility. So the best thing to do is get rid of that definition. And you listen to all the yeah. great investors out there and they just say volatility is not risk. <laughs> risk is the risk, is the chance of, of permanent capital loss, i.e. the business has fundamentally changed for the worse and it ain't ever coming right. back. This, is, this, is, this ain't volatility. This is a broken business. That very, two very, very, very different things. And one, one more thing. I, I know I say this yeah, all the go. time. Pick, you, you, I'll, I can throw 100 examples at you, but I would, mm-hmm. the exercise I would say is go out there and find the best performing stock you can find, US market, Australia, mm-hmm. market, the one that's just knocked the lights out, the one that if you had the DeLorean time machine, you would go back and bet the farm <laughs> on. And I guarantee yeah. you, and it's up a gajillion percent, I guarantee yeah. you along the way it had more 20% drawdowns than you could throw a stick at. Mm. Guaranteed. And that's the good, that's that's the ones that worked out really, really well. Yeah, that's the good ones, exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's you right. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. I, I will only add that I still absolutely understand the sentiment around, you know, should we let individual people own shares or the sentiment around using a stop loss order. And it comes down to people are not biologically uh, predisposed to invest well. We're just not intell- we're not, not biologically good at it. Evolution hasn't taught us to put something down and come back 40 years later and have it be much, 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 much better. At best, 
you might think of someone on the savannah or soon after planting a nut tree that's going to harvest in 40 years' time for the kids. But realistically, that was way few and far between. You had to water all that kind of stuff. The reality simply is we are conditioned and we are biologically prepared, whatever it evolved, to not do it well, which is not very good at it. And so every urge, and this is, by the way, why it's hard. It's also why the returns are better. You get 1%, not 0.1% in the bank. You'll average about 10%-ish in shares. That exists because of risk. That exists because of volatility. That exists because it's hard to do. Not only hard to do well in terms of stock picking, it's hard to stick with temperamentally. So while we spend all of our time talking about shares and businesses on this podcast, and we absolutely think if you are ready for it and can do it and want to do it, investing individual shares can be great. If you're someone like Stacey who's just like, you know what? This thing is just, I don't want, I don't want the risk and the, and, the, and the volatility and I don't want the sleep at night. I don't want all, there are other things you can do like ETFs, which are fantastic. Now, they will still fall, by the way, when the market falls. There's not, we don't, can't get away from that. You can remove company risk, but you can't remove systemic risk. Mm. You just got oh, systemic volatility. Sorry to use your point, Andrew. It's a much better point. So that, those things are all true. And I just, you know, I, I, there, there is, I love people getting started investing. I fear that not everyone is, mentally, emotionally prepared for the journey. And that's the that that's rather than banning people, rather than stop loss, rather than anything else, the best thing we can do, and if you're someone who does invest, the best thing you can do for your friends and family is preparing them for the emotional journey they're going to be on because that is really going to test them. And what I desperately don't want, and where I would, I wouldn't ever support a, a ban on individual investors, but where I would, you know, have some sympathy for that is those people who sold after the market fell 20, 30, 40% in 2020 and never got back in because they just got freaked out, couldn't take the pain and walked away. And that's just really, really sucky. So, you know, I don't know how we fix it. Maybe we can't. It's a feature on a bug, right? The other people's underperformance is our opportunity for outperformance, which again is pretty Darwinian, but also very true. So there's those things that just are true in the market. You can't get away from them and maybe you shouldn't want to. But it is a reminder of anyone who's investing, just know what you're doing, know how you're going to respond because I really, really don't want you to do yourself a damage by responding the wrong way, no matter how good you feel right now, when the fire you know, is on the feet, when you're kind of really struggling with what's going on, when the market just grinds away slowly like the GFC or crashes quickly like COVID and you're tempted to do something, anything to stop the pain, that's the time you need desperately not to give into it. But that's the time when most people do. And that's, to my mind, the biggest challenge for me, for us on this podcast, for The Motley Fool, for Strawman, for anyone else, is to be part of a solution that helps people understand what they're getting into and how to manage themselves through it so they don't blow themselves up. Yeah, we, we, better, we better finish, but my, my closing thought would be one, one point of solace is that it does get easier. Like mm-hmm. the, more, the more you internalise that message and the more you experience <laughs> yeah. it and more that you come out the other side, yeah. It becomes easier and easier. So it's very easy for us to say all of this kind of stuff. And the brutal reality when you're experiencing is, is very different. So I acknowledge that. Yeah. So yeah. just to give a personal example, I mean, I'm, mm. I think my portfolio is down about 18, 19% in the last three months. That sucks, mm. man. Like oh, that, man, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's almost a fifth of my, and most of my wealth is in the market. And, mate, you've got like 5 or $6 million. So if you think about that. You know, <laughs> I wish. You lost a million dollars in the last three months. That's awful. Well, you know, it's, you it's it, whatever it is, it sucks. Yeah. Like, let me tell yeah, you. Really let me really tell does. you. At the same time, over the last year, it's down about 5%. So that's still nothing to crow mm. about. But since, I mean, just go strawman.com forward slash strawman. You'll see my <laughs> you'll see my public portfolio. It's 29% compound since 2017. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I'm okay, you know. And 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 this isn't <laughs> this isn't my first rodeo. I've I have yeah, I have yeah. I have been in this situation many yep. many 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 times before. <laughs> but but each time I go through it, I become better at it, and I become more sanguine in in mm-hmm. in going through. And that's not a question of people. It, it sounds really dumb because it feels like you're just burying your head in the sand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And people go, "Oh my god, how can you say that? Yeah, that was yeah, then. Yeah, that was now. Yeah, different yeah. market. Rah, rah, rah. Yep, you're just kidding yep. yourself. You know this yep. this naive optimism that it'll log it." come back and it's like, well, mm. no, it's not, it's not just it'll come back because it will come back. It's because mm. I still have very high conviction in most of the businesses that I hold and some I, I'm lacking conviction in and I'll change my mind, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always a, it's always a question of right now, this, yeah. whatever I had, this is what I've got. This is where it's invested. Do I remain optimistic for good, sound, rational reasons on the future of these businesses? If the answer is yes, then that's cool. I'll, t- I'll cop it on the chin. And I'm sure in the year 2032 when I'm looking back, I, I barely remember this period. I will barely That's, remember it. That is the thing. You know? I will tell you about one of the things I struggle with. No, I struggle. I mean, look, that's the other thing I've said before. Like, it gets a bit easier, but it doesn't exactly go away. Like, it still desperately sucks. No, right? it sucks. You lose that money. Like, the dollar value of that, you're like, I had X. Now I've got X less 20%. Like, mm. that's, it was never real money because it's all, it's all paper, but you, know, you could have cashed out at any point. So, mm. like, it's like, I just, I just got 20% poorer. Like, man, that, like, that's brutal. Yeah. And um, so it kind of does go away a little bit. The other thing that, just a fair warning for those who are starting a journey and are building their portfolios, not only is your, your portfolio grows in value, which is great, but the losses actually get larger too. They mate. do. So yeah. I, I'm the same as you. I don't, I don't think, what am I down? I must be down now about 10%, but I was down much more. Um, and the dollar value of what I'm down is, is larger than any loss I've ever sucked in that cumulative sense yeah. since, since, I, since I started investing, right? Because my portfolio is growing. So it started from a bigger height that four was was more and you're kind of like, oh my God, like that's gone. What you, And you start to think, what should I have done? What could I have done? Was that ever reasonable? What am I doing wrong? You know, why won't it go back up? You know, this investing thing, all that stuff. You get those, all those temptations. And as you say, you've just got to know, you know what? Been here before, it didn't suck that much less last time, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, I'm not sure. Still sucks now. The long-term story is still the story of growth, and that's that's probably the key one. There's, there's always one more thing. We're so ridiculous. I'll stop. You do the one more thing, and then we'll stop. I do find it a challenge. Is the longer you do this, the scaling problem. So when you're maybe mm. you know, I first bought my first share when I was I don't know twenty or something like that, mm. and I think I bought a thousand dollars worth of shares, and holy. Mm. You know, that was, yeah. oh my God, a thousand dollars at Tim. So, you, and it's sort yeah, of like, yeah, as yeah. I mean, just, just do the maths, right? You don't, you don't yeah, that's you, right. I certainly don't come from money. I'm certainly not a, a, a rich man by sort of Western mm. standards or anything. But the, just yeah. when you, when you sort of take a 25 year experience of that and compound yeah. that, even at market average, right? It gets, it gets very, big <laughs> very slowly. Yeah. yeah. But then you sort of, you, it, the, the, the hard, one of the challenges I find is that, you know, you find yourself with with much more capital that you're looking mm-hmm. after, yeah. and it's just sort of like, oh my god, am I really going to buy fifty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah, exactly. worth of this? And it sounds huge in dollar <laughs> yeah, terms, but yeah, you've got to yeah. you've got to think of it That's in so terms true. of the percentage allocation. Yep. And as you yep. point out, when that loss happens, oh my god, the dollar yeah. value is very big. But what yeah. matters really there is the percentage sort of changes in that. So if, if I continued to buy shares in the same parcels I did when I was 21, I mean, just mm-hmm. not going to move the dial. It's a complete waste yeah. of time. You've yeah. got to be able to stop thinking about that in dollar terms and think about it yeah. in percentage terms. Yeah, great advice. Another thing. No, and another thing. We're done. <laughs> One we're more done. thing. <laughs> we, have, we have made it through this episode. I hope you enjoyed that, Aranz. That was a fun conversation. Thank you for some really great questions, yeah, great questions. by the way. I've said before, um, please do follow us on all the socials. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can grab Andrew exclusively on Twitter. Thanks for his deal with Jack Dorsey. Seven-figure deal, I hear. But Jack's, uh, Jack's I no longer there anymore. 
Oh, he did the deal. He did the deal. <laughs> he's, off, he's off doing blockchain Oh, yeah, stuff. that's right. Yeah. Enough of that. Speaking of tangents, uh, follow Andrew on Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon. I usually make a joke about that when I think of it, so you can insert your own joke here. Uh, or Strawman in Strawman Invest is his, is his company Twitter account. Uh, you can get me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P or the, at The Motley Fool AU. And you can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money, facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia. Email us info at fool.com.au. And if you don't mind, Leave us some stars, particularly if you're using an Apple device. Uh, go to your podcast feed. Hit the five stars if you wouldn't mind. Leave us a nice little note if you want to so other people can find the podcast. If you've made it to this point, I'm going to assume either you're hate listening or you're really enjoying it. Either way, we've added some value hopefully to your life and if you wouldn't mind giving us some stars, that would be much, much appreciated. Until next Friday, Angel, you'll rejoin me, won't you? You bet I will. Good man. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.